God was giving to that people. And so let me give you just a little bit of the background of, of Jeremiah 23 and the, actually the whole book of Jeremiah, and it'll maybe help you to understand a little bit. Um, this is helpful to me because when I, when I went to seminary, I, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I was there in my home church until I was 19, took my first youth ministry position and, and failed miserably and decided, hey, I better go to seminary and figure out how to really do this thing. And so I did. I went to seminary, and, and I did not know how little of the Bible I actually knew until I went to seminary and said, I remember uh, Dr. Peter Gentry's Old Testament survey class. I think I probably sat there with my mouth open and, and drool coming out most of that whole semester. Just, this is not the Bible that I grew up with. Uh, just him opening the scriptures to me in a way that I'd never seen before, beginning to put pieces together. I, I've described it for people in the past, like, I feel like when I went to seminary, I had a box of biblical puzzle pieces. I had a, I had a, piece, a picture of Abraham, and I had a, had a picture of Isaac and Jacob and, and Moses and all these Old Testament characters, but I really had no idea how they all went together. In fact, if, you had, if you'd given me a list of, of 12 Old Testament characters, you just randomly drew out 12 Old Testament names and said, put these in chronological order, I would have had no clue. I probably could have told you that Abraham came before Moses if I really thought hard enough about it, but I really just didn't get how it all went together. And seminary was like somebody handing to me the puzzle box top. If you've ever tried to put a puzzle together without the box top, it can be very, very difficult. But somebody gives you that box top and you know what you're looking at and you're able to start putting those pieces together, it makes all the difference. And that's what uh, seminary training did for me and helping me to, to understand. I still have so far to go in understanding God's Word. But I want to give you just a few puzzle pieces and help you put a few things together in a, in a little bit of a chronological order. Now, the Bible is not really, God's word was not really concerned about giving us a historical chronological account. This is not primarily a history book. Now, what it does teach us in history is 100% accurate and true, but the Bible was not concerned with being a history book, starting at Adam and moving through Malachi. And it was not, that was not the Bible's desire. This is a book of primarily of theology. It teaches us about who God is and who we are as his people and what Jesus Christ has come to do for us. But let me give you a little bit of history here that leads up to the book of Jeremiah that will hopefully help you to understand what we're going to find here in Jeremiah 23. It all starts back with a guy named Abraham. Abraham was to Israel like George Washington is to us, kind of the father of their nation. He was the, he was the one who was the patriarch. He began it all. God called, by, called Abraham around the year. You may want to write some of these dates down if you're kind of a dates type person. Around the year 2000 B.C., you find God calling Abraham out of Ur to go to a land he had never known. He was going to give him a land. He was going to give him a people, and he was going to give him his presence, the presence of God in the life of the people of Abraham's descendants. And so there's Abraham. Just around the year 2000 B.C., this begins. You fast forward about 500 years, and you find Moses, okay? Uh, this is their all proximate dates. Some of you guys that know the dates better than I do, please don't come to me after the sermon and go, hey, you know, that was really 1446, okay? We're given approximate dates here. So around 1500 B.C., you find Moses, and Moses is the one, after the people had gone to live in Egypt, they had been taken as captives as slaves in Egypt after a period of time. They had lived in slavery for 400 years. And then Moses comes on the scene. And Moses is the one that God uses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And they cross 
over the Red Sea on dry ground, all the miraculous things that happened and all of that. And Moses leads the people to the very border of the promised land where Joshua takes over, leads them on to the promised land. Fast forward from there to about 1000 B.C., so you've got 2,000 is Abraham, 1,500 is Moses. About 1,000 B.C., you find King David. David was really uh, the beginning of the line of the patriarchs. And I know Saul was the first king, but David was really the first king that was formerly chosen, I believe, by God. Saul was pretty much the king of the people, whereas David was the one that God put in place and began to promise him, you're going to be a king. Your king your, the line of your kingdom is going to last forever. That's going to be important today, by the way that the line of David's kingdom would last forever. We'll come back to that idea. So you got 2,000 B.C., you got Abraham about 1,500, you got Moses about 1,000 B.C., you have David. And then you have this long string of kings. You have David, then you have Solomon, then after Solomon, the kingdom splits because of Solomon's disobedience to God. The kingdom splits in two, and you have ten tribes in the, in the north and two tribes in the south, and the kingdom is now split, Israel and Judah in the south. Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and there's these lines of kings, two lines of kings that begin. You can see them played out through kings and chronicles here in the Old Testament, and you see those, this line of kings. And for the most part, when you read about these kings, this is not a glorious list. In fact, these guys pretty much messed it up now, about 99% of the time. And every once in a while, you find a good one. You find Josiah, you, you find a few kings, Uzziah, you find some other ones that, that did a good job. But for the most part, for the most part, the, the tagline at the end of the lives of these kings was, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then sometimes it'll say, and he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all the ones before him. And then you see Ahab, and it says, he did the most evil in the sight of the Lord than any of the other kings had done. It's almost like they were trying to trump one another with how evil they could be, how far they could lead the people into rebellion, until you come all the way down to the time of Jeremiah, right around 650 or so, about 600 B.C. Actually, we believe God called Jeremiah in the year 627 B.C. I won't get into the dating of that. But God called Jeremiah as a teenager to go to the people and say, enough is enough. It's done. God has dealt with you in this long line of unfaithful kings all the way back to Solomon. Now for several hundred years, this line of kings has been disobedient to the Lord one after the other. And God is now drawing the line. It's a reminder to us that God is very, very merciful. But there comes a day when the judgment of God comes the Lord is eminently merciful, but he also brings his judgment in due time. And so Jeremiah comes and brings the words of judgment to the people of God. But right in the midst of these words of judgment that you're going to see here in Jeremiah 23 are words of great hope. It's interesting, whenever God brings a word of judgment, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, in the very first words of God's judgment given to the people of God, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we saw right in the midst of the, those words of judgment, there was already an intermingling of hope, a sprinkling of hope that God wanted them to know, yes, I am bringing judgment upon you because of your sin, but I will not leave you without hope. And that's what we're going to see here in Jeremiah 23 as well. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning as we read the first eight verses of Jeremiah 23. 
The prophet Jeremiah speaks these things into the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. You can be seated. Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to understand your word this morning. And Lord, I know that there are some difficult things here, but there are also some very glorious things, and I pray that we would not miss the glory in the midst of the difficulties. We thank you for your promises that are faithful and true, and may we see those promises clearly and know that those promises are for us as your people today, just as they were for a people living in misery in Jeremiah's day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the prophet Jeremiah speaks here to a people who are facing imminent destruction. By this time, the king of Babylon had already surrounded the city of Jerusalem. The Lord had been promising through these Old Testament prophets for generations that judgment was coming. He had been calling the people to repentance by one prophet after another, most of whom were not listened to at all as we talked about just a few weeks ago. Most of the prophets were rejected. This long line of prophets that had begun with Moses, that had been speaking the word of God to the people of God so that they might follow in the ways of God, they had been largely rejected. All the way down to Jeremiah, who was among the last of the prophets that spoke to Judah, that spoke to them and called them to repent. But Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because... His message was not listened to, and it left him a broken man. That he was called to preach to a people who would not listen. And they did not listen. But here in chapter 23, as Jeremiah is really preparing the people for the destruction of Jerusalem, that's really what's happening here. As he is preparing them for what is going to be the most life-altering thing that has ever happened 
to God's people all the way back to the times of Moses as he, as he references there in those, in those final verses that we read this morning. As he's preparing God's people for imminent destruction, as Nebuchadnezzar is getting ready to overtake Jerusalem, he's going to destroy the city, he's going to destroy the temple, he's going to carry those who remain off into captivity in Babylon, he's going to scatter the people like they've never been scattered before. Jeremiah brings them some words of hope. And I want you to see them this morning. First of all, he speaks of the remnant blessed. This is on your outline if you'd like to fill in the blanks. It's there for you. The remnant blessed, verses 1 through 4. He speaks here of a group of people that he refers to as the remnant. Now, this is a key word in the book of Jeremiah. He uses this word 19 times, the word remnant. He uses it more than any other author. And he is speaking here of a group of people that God was going to draw back out of the nations to which he had sent them into exile. That he was going to miraculously, by the, his own hand of power, draw them out of the very people that were going to carry them away into captivity. Now, note, Jeremiah is speaking this long before these people to whom he is speaking it were actually carried into captivity. This is happening before the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's already encircled the city. Things are not looking good. But at this point, there were still some people in Jerusalem who were holding out hope and thinking, well, we can beat these Babylonians. We'll just hold out. We're stronger than they are. They can't take Jerusalem. Jerusalem's God's city. This is where the temple is. They were still holding out hope, even though God was speaking through his prophet and saying, destruction is coming. But he speaks here of a remnant that would be blessed. Now, before we get into the exact blessing, you need to see there that right in the midst of this blessing, there is something of a cursing that takes place as well. He says, woe to you, shepherds of Israel. He's bringing a woe upon the leaders of God's people during that day. Now, we've talked about in weeks past how there were basically three groups of leadership in the Old Testament days. You had your prophets. Remember, these are the guys who were called to speak the word of God to the people of God so the people might walk in the ways of God. You had the prophets. You had the priests. These were the religious leaders that were called to stand as representatives between God and man to make the sacrifices, to lead the people in worship. And then you had the kings. Those are the ones we'll focus on this morning. In fact, by the way, uh, the word king is a very important one in the Bible. You will not be able to understand this word unless you understand the idea of a kingdom. Now, I know that we live in a democracy and we, we struggle a little bit with the idea of a kingdom. When we think of a kingdom, we think of, of something that's, uh, that's less than what we have. But understand the kingdom of God is much greater than anything we will ever enjoy in this country. And so the word king, by the way, the word king or kingdom occurs over 3,000 times in the Bible. If you don't think that's a prominent theme, then you've, you've missed a few things. You need to go back and, and begin to see that theme coming out time and time again, especially in the teachings of Jesus. His primary teaching was about the kingdom of God. And so he speaks here about these shepherds, these leaders of the people, and he says, Woe to you, shepherds. Woe to you, leaders of the people, because rather than leading the people faithfully as a shepherd would with his sheep, you have driven the people mercilessly. Rather than leading them by streams of living water, you have led them into dry places. Rather than leading them away from danger, you've led them right into the heart of danger. 
And you've driven these people away from God, and now I will drive you away from this place. That's the idea of these opening verses here. Woe to you shepherds who destroy and shatter the sheep, scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. By the way, you'll notice five times in these eight verses, you see the words, declares the Lord. It's like a mantra over and over again declares the Lord, declares the Lord, and he's saying, these are promises from God. These things are going to happen. Because it's what the Lord declares, and he's always faithful to his word. But right in the midst of these opening verses, there's a blessing here, and I want you to see it. It's not on your outline, but I have put it up on the screen for you. I wasn't able to get these things in before Tuesday. But three parts of this blessing, in the midst of saying, of speaking this woe upon the leadership of the people who would be driven out, would be taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, would be driven to Babylon, would suffer in great, horrendous and horrible ways. He speaks about a blessing that would come. The first part of this blessing is that this remnant would become fruitful. They would become fruitful. He said, you will be fruitful, multiply. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold. Jeremiah prophesied that after 70 years of captivity, these people would be brought back to their land. They would rebuild Jerusalem, and there would be a hope for the people once again. Those things play out exactly as Jeremiah prophesied then. But keep in mind, they're way before the 70-year period at this point. They're just right on the verge of that period beginning as they're getting ready to be driven to Babylon taken into captivity. He says, After this time I will regather my people out of the countries where I've driven them. I'll bring them back and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 to the promises made to Adam. In the very beginning it was the will of God for the people of God to be fruitful and to multiply. To fill the earth. That we were called as the people of God to fill the earth with the goodness of God. To demonstrate to the earth the glory of God. To rule over the earth not in some kind of if evil or, or way that would use the earth to our own purposes. But that we would rule over the earth in a godly way. That we would demonstrate dominion over the earth just as God demonstrates dominion over our lives that we would be fruitful and, and multiply. This, this is a renewal of the promises made to Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Secondly, he says of this remnant, the blessing to them is what, was that they would become fearless. He says you will fear no more. This is a renewal of the promises made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. You go back to the beginning of the people of Israel in Genesis chapter 15, God speaks to Abraham. And the first words that God speaks to Abraham are fear not Abraham. Fear not, for I am your shield and your very great reward. You need not be afraid. I will remain faithful to you because I am going to remain faithful to my word. I will remain faithful to you because I am the covenant keeper. And so the promises made to Abraham are renewed here in Jeremiah chapter 23 when he says this people will not fear anymore. Think about the scene there for a moment before we go on. They are surrounded in this moment by the most powerful army in the entire world. The Babylonians were the world power at that time. The Babylonian army that was known for their immense cruelty had encircled their city. They were facing imminent death and destruction. 
And Jeremiah is bringing a message from God that says, there will come a time when you won't have to fear anymore. Maybe it sounds like just words. But in this, you can really only see the promises of God. Finally, in the remnant blessed, we see a people who were found. A people who were found, he says, and I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. They shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any of them be missing. What God was saying was, he was saying, I'm going to draw out of these nations that have taken you into captivity every last person that I have deemed a part of this remnant. In the same way that God has given us the promise, I will not lose one that is within my hand. I'm not going to lose one of those who have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, you don't have to worry today, children of God, that God is going to someday forget about you or that one day you're going to commit one sin too many or that one day you're going to do just not enough works to enter into his kingdom. You don't have to worry about the fact that one day you're going to lose this salvation because you didn't do anything to gain it in the first place. In fact, everything that you had done left you in a place separated from God. You were without God and without hope in the world. And it's only by His grace and for His own glory that He redeemed you by the death of His Son at the cross. And so when God says to you, you don't have to fear. When God says to you, be fruitful and multiply. When God says to you, you are found by me and you will not be missing anymore. You once were lost, but now you're found. You were blind, but now you see. You don't have to fear that one day you'll become blind again. Because once God has opened your eyes, they will never be shut again. Once God has opened your ears, they will never be shut again. Once God has opened your heart, it will never be closed to Him again. Because it's the work of God in you. I want to share with you a verse from 2 Samuel 23 that will lead us into the next portion of our message this morning these are the last words of david who is a is a central figure to jeremiah 23 and truly we could say he's really in many ways next to jesus christ the central figure of the bible in fact david's name occurs more than any other name in the bible over a thousand times you find the name of david he is a very important figure and i hope you'll understand why as a result Time today. But these are David's last words in 2 Samuel 23. And I want you to see something here that will lead us into our next portion. For he, speaking of God the Father, he has made me, has made with me, this is David speaking, has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Now that word Will he not cause to prosper? That word literally means to branch out. It's a picture that would be used in a, in a botany class of a tree that is flourishing. I was at my, my parents' house uh, this week for, for Thanksgiving, and, and when I was a little boy, well, I guess, when I was, actually when I was in sixth grade, we moved out to the house my parents live in now, and I can remember planting the trees. We built that house, and we planted a row of, of uh, evergreen trees down that fence row. When we first moved in, I remember doing it with my dad. It was a great time. And I was looking at those trees with my dad on the front porch this week, and it was interesting how different those trees were. When we first got those trees, they all looked exactly the same. I mean, exactly the same. But now, some of them are about this size. Some of them are quite a bit wider than this size here. And there's, but there's one in the corner of, of their lot there that is all but dead. 
And it's the strangest thing because they're only about 10 feet apart. I don't really know what the difference is. They were all planted at the same time. None of them have necessarily been cared for more than any others. But some of them have prospered and branched out and other ones have, have begun to die away. And the picture here is in the midst of this, of this place where David is speaking about, this is his final words, on his deathbed he is speaking these things, he's saying, as I myself am dying, I want you to know that there is going to branch out from me the very promises of God. Those are words of faith, folks. Those are words of faith. A man on his deathbed was speaking, saying, the very promises of God are going to branch out from me, not because I'm anything special. David knew his sins. He said, my sin is always before me. I'm reminded constantly of what has happened that has separated me from God, but I'm also reminded constantly of the grace of God that has drawn me back to him time and time again, that God has been faithful to me even when I've been unfaithful to him. You see, God's promises are not based in our faithfulness. We ought to say praise the Lord for that. But God's promises are based in his faithfulness to his people. So David says, will he not cause to prosper, to branch out all my help and my desire? And that leads us to the second portion of our scripture today. Hopefully you'll see all these puzzle pieces fitting together before we finish up. The second part after the remnant blessed is the righteous branch in verses 5 through 6. We're going to move quick this morning. The righteous branch. Uh, four things here. This is, a, this is an Old Testament picture. You see the branch with a capital B about six times in the Old Testament. And of these six times, there are four main pictures given by three Old Testament prophets. So there's six times that it's mentioned that give us four pictures, and they're given by three of the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Isaiah. In Jeremiah 23, the one we're looking at here, we see that this righteous branch will be one who will be a king. It talks about his kingship. His kingship. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, it also speaks about the branch, but there it speaks about his servanthood. In Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, it also speaks about the branch, but there it speaks about his humanity. And in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, it also speaks about the branch, but there it speaks about his divinity. So it speaks about this one known as the branch. It's always in reference to the line of David, a descendant of David that would come. It refers back here to 2 Samuel 23, David's last word saying that it will branch out from me. God takes that verb, turns it into a noun, turns it into a proper name, you might even say, and the branch becomes the promised Messiah. And these four characteristics are played out in the life of this one, that he would be both a king and a servant. Now, those two things may not seem to go together. In fact, you think about the kings of the Old Testament era, of the kings that ruled over Israel and over Judah, and in large part, they were anything but servants. These were men who abused the people rather than serving the people. These were not servant leaders for the most part. They were men who used the people for their own evil ends. They did whatever suited themselves, not what was good for the people of God. So here we see a servant, a king who would also be a servant. But then we see also in the other two pictures that he would be a man who was also divine. He would be the God-man. This is not just a New Testament understanding. The incarnation, God come in the flesh in Jesus Christ, was not something that God came up with in the New Testament day. This was an Old Testament understanding, but for the most part, the people missed it. They didn't see it. 
They didn't see that God was speaking of a Messiah who would be both God and man, who would be both servant and king. But we see it clearly here as he speaks about the branch. You can take these things and compare them up to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each of the four Gospels has one of these themes. In Matthew's Gospel, his theme is Jesus as king. In Mark's theme, his theme is Jesus as the servant. That's where you have Mark saying he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke's overall theme speaks of Jesus' humanity. And John's overall theme speaks of Jesus' divinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Speaking of Jesus Christ. And so he speaks there in verses 5 and 6 of this righteous branch, of this one who would come from the line of David, and he would execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And then listen to this. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the Hebrew term Yahweh Tzidkenu. I don't expect you to remember that. But literally, it means the Lord our righteousness. They've added the verb is there, but most literally in the Hebrew, I think this is actually not the best translation here, the literal Hebrew says, the Lord our righteousness. Not the Lord is our righteousness, but the Lord our righteousness. And it's a proper name here. And it's speaking of Yahweh Tzidkenu, which means not just who he is, which is Yahweh, which is the Lord, which is the name that even the people of Israel revered so greatly they would not even speak that name. But it also speaks of what he would do, that he would act in righteousness, that his very character would be righteousness. And you think over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, and you see Paul saying, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, because of what God has done for you, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus did not just come to show us righteousness, sanctification, redemption. He came to be for us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's a very important distinction, folks. Because so many times when we come to God, we come to God looking for the gifts of God. Well, yeah, God, I want wisdom. Yeah, God, I, I want righteousness. Yeah, God, I want redemption. We want those things. We want the good gifts of God. But unless we recognize that we cannot have the gifts of God apart from the person of God, we will never have the gifts of God. Even when we think about heaven, we think about heaven and we think, well, I want to go to heaven because, first of all, I want to avoid hell. That's a good motivation, by the way. It's a good motivation to avoid hell. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. Because if you don't want Jesus Christ, then the truth of the matter is you really don't want heaven. Think on that for just a moment. We're going to see in the coming months as we dive into the book of Revelation together, we're going to see that heaven is not centered upon all the things that we think are good and great in this life. Heaven is not the eternal golf course or the great fishing trip. It's none of those things. Heaven is centered clearly, clearly, clearly upon one, one person. It's centered upon one person. He is on a throne. 
And his name is Jesus Christ. And if you do not want him, then you really don't want heaven. But when you really grasp what it means to love him and to know him, when he opens your heart to who he is, then you begin to want heaven. Because you find in him all the things that you thought you really wanted. Some of you are shaking your heads because you've gotten that. Because you've begun to grasp what it means to want him and not just his good gifts. move on from here i wish we had more time this morning but we're gonna we're gonna draw this to a close we talked about the remnant blessed and the righteous branch and finally this morning let's look at the renewed benchmark you see god had had given the people some things on some things on which to hang the hat of their faith these were some things that they could look back to if they ever got in that place where they began to question well I wonder if God is really still there for us. God had taught them to look back to the days of Moses. If you ever get in that place that God kind of said to these people, if you ever get in that place where you begin to wonder, am I still there for you? Then think back to the days of Moses and all that I did in the ten plagues over the, over the country of Egypt and how I brought you out of Egypt and you walked through the Red Sea on dry ground and how I walked with you through the wilderness for 40 years and I fed you with manna from heaven and I fed you and I, and I brought water from a stone and Moses led you and there were so many glorious things. Even, even the shoes on your feet, they did not wear out. And I, and I led you as, as, as my people and I was so tender and delicate with you even while you were continually walking in disobedience to me. And I gave you my law. I did all these wonderful things on your behalf. If there's ever a day when you begin to question, am I still there for you? Think back to the days of Moses. But notice God says something different here. There's a new day on the horizon. If there had ever been a day when the people of God in the Old Testament days were questioning, is God still there for us? Surely it was on the day when Babylon was encircling Jerusalem, preparing to destroy the city and carry the people that were left off into captivity. Surely this was a day when they would have been questioning, is God still here for us? And God on this day gives them a new promise. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Oh, but there will be a new benchmark. The new benchmark will be this, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, out of all the countries where he had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. You see, God say, I'm doing a new thing in your day. Even in the midst of what you see, all this death and destruction, all that's about to happen as Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy this city. I want you to know that there's great hope here. I'm doing something even greater than I did in the days of Moses. Because in the days of Moses, I drew my one people out of one country. And that was a great work of God. Don't diminish it in any way. But he's saying here, I'm going to draw my people out of many countries. All the countries to which you will be scattered in this day, I'm going to draw you out of many countries and bring you back to this land. And it was merely, this here was merely a foreshadowing of the gospel plan of God in the New Testament. 
that one day God was going to draw not just one people from one country, not just one people from many countries, but God was going to draw people from every tribe and tongue and nation together around his throne. That the ingathering on the last day would be greater than all of the ingatherings before. That God was going to draw all of his people unto himself around a great throne. And we would see him exalted as king. And you think, what in the world do I do with all this this morning? Let me just leave you with a simple question today. Is he your king? That may sound like a very general question, a very broad type thing, but I want to be specific this morning. When you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, do you think about the King of Kings? Do you think about the sovereign ruler over your life? Do you think about the one who is so in control over every detail of your existence that nothing escapes his notice and everything that he is doing in your life, he is doing for your ultimate good and for the ultimate display of his glory through you? Do you think about Jesus Christ in that way? Because I believe when the church begins to recognize that we are living for a king on a throne, that yes, he is the prophet of God who speaks the word of God to the people of God, and he has given us this word that we may live in obedience to it and be transformed by the grace of God. That yes, he is our great high priest who is the one mediator between God and man, and he has enlightened us into what it means to have a relationship with God and to live near to him. But until we grasp the fact that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and that He is the sovereign ruler over our lives, then in many ways we'll continue to live some kind of a nominal form of Christianity. Some kind of a less than relationship with God. And we'll have those days when it seems as if our lives are surrounded by the very forces of evil. It's as if we are Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar has surrounded us and there seems as if there's nothing but death and destruction all around us. And on that day, to whom will you turn? Will you turn to your king? On the day when cancer strikes, will you look to your king? On the day when tragedy comes, will you trust in your king? On the day when all around seems to be falling, when your marriage seems to be falling apart, when your children seem to have departed from you, when your job is there no more, when everything seems to be going the wrong way, will you look to your king and trust him? Because in that day, I want to tell you, based upon the authority of the Word of God, if you are a child of the living God, then you can say, as surely as the Lord lives, as surely as the Lord lives who delivered me from cancer, as surely as the Lord lives who gave His Son at the cross for me, as surely as the Lord lives who delivered me from sin and death, as surely as the Lord lives, yet will I hope in Him. Yet will I live for Him. Yet will I trust in Him. 
If you don't have that hope this morning, then I want to invite you to look to the King. Don't just look to some sad little Savior who had nothing better to do one Friday than go to an old rugged cross for you. We have diminished the power of Jesus Christ in our day. And we need to be reminded that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords right now, seated on the throne of heaven. And He intercedes for the people of God. And He calls out and away from our pitiful version of Christianity into a living faith. If that's what you desire this morning, then I call you to it. Trust Him. Look to Him by faith. And see your King. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you that we have a king on a throne. That if we would but look to him, we would see that he is a good king, a righteous king, a redeeming king, a rescuing king. And Lord, we need all of those things, but most of all, I pray that we would recognize our need for the King this morning, not just for His benefits. That we would recognize that in Him are all the benefits of God. All the things that we truly need are wrapped up in our King. Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we would step away from these nominal forms of Christianity, from these weak forms of faith, God. And that we would look to a king on a throne who dwells in righteousness and justice, who is wisdom incarnate and who prays for us that we would draw near to the throne of God with confidence confidence in what he has done at the cross for us so help us to respond this morning we pray these things in Jesus name Amen